Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Chapter 12 of The Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter 12 The Uninvited Guest. Now, as he stood before Amy and saw her eyes widen with recognition, he knew that he would have need of all his luck and all his wit. He stepped hastily forward. Alhamdulillah, glory to God that he has permitted me to behold you this day, he murmured, in the studiously sing-song Arabic that might be expected from a humble Turkish woman, in plain mantle and yasmak. May Allah continue to spread before thee the carpet of enjoyment. And then, lower, almost muffled by the thick veil, can you give me a moment? Eagerly, significantly, his eyes met hers. Half fearfully, Amy flashed an excited look around her. The space before the marriage throne had thinned, for there were no more arrivals waiting to offer their congratulations, and the guests were clustering now about the tables for refreshment, or drifting into the next salon, where behind firmly stretched silken walls a stringed orchestra was playing. Miss Jeffreys alone was lingering near, but she moved off now, at a secret look from Ryder, with an appearance of unconcern. "'I'm going to try my vernacular on the bride,' Ryder had told her. "'Don't linger or look alarmed. I won't give the show away.' So there was no one to overhear a low-toned colloquy between the bride and the veiled woman, no one to note or wonder that the veiled woman was speaking, strangely enough, in rapid English. "'When I didn't hear from you, I had to come, to know if you received the package and the letter I sent.' With a swift gesture of her little ringed hand, Amy drew from the laces of her bosom the heavy gold locket. "'Indeed, I have it, and the note, too, I found. But I could not write you. There was no way, no one to trust to mail it and they had stolen my key, she whispered, and the confessing words with their quiver of forlornness told Ryder something of the story of those helpless days and nights. He murmured, I didn't dare write you more personally, for fear they would find the note. I understood, that plaid about the box, that was so clever a warning. I kept the box and hunted in it. I wanted to tell you more about that locket. I dug it up myself from the tomb I was excavating. Do you remember how you wished that I would dig from the sands, whatever secret I most desired, and I found that. And it happened that at McLean's I had met the French agent who was searching for any trace of the Delcasses, of the wife and child of the explorer, who had disappeared fifteen years before. That miniature was your image, and I guessed at once. McLean and I went to the Pasha. Oh, I didn't tell him I'd met you, he flung in, his eyes twinkling. And we pretended we knew all about his marriage to Madame Delcasse, and he owned up without a quiver but when we tried to claim you for the French family, he doubled like a hare. He said that Dalcast's child was dead, died when his own child was a baby, and that you were his own. But I was sure that you were more than fourteen, and that he was simply putting it over on us so as to have this marriage go on without interference, and so I tried to get the story to you. Even now I thought you ought to know, he added, as if in palliation of his invasion here, for he realized now how tremendous an invasion it was. All the guests about him had not given him that feeling, all that sea of femininity, 
those grave matrons whose serenely unveiled faces would burn with shame to be beheld by this stranger, those bright slim girls in their extravagant frocks, their tulle, their lace, their pearls, their diamonds, all the hidden charms that no man had yet seen stirred in him no more than an excited and adventurous curiosity. But the vision of Amy, that delicate beauty in its tragic irony of throne and diadem, it touched him to tenderness and to an actual sense of sacrilege at the freedom of his gaze. No moonlight vision this, ethereal and dreamlike, but a vivid, disquieting radiance of dark shining eyes and rose-flushed cheeks. He had never seen her hair before, midnight hair, escaping little curls from the veil and the diadem. And he had never really seen her mouth, wistful and gay, like the mouth of the miniature, nor her chin, so tender and willful, nor her skin, satin soft in its veiling from the daylight. She was more than young and sweet and fair. She was beauty, beauty with its elusive, ineluctable spell, entangled with the appeal of her helplessness. A bright blush flooded her now, and her eyes fell in confusion, before the prolonging of his look. "'But it is dangerous, your being here,' she murmured. "'The fortieth door,' he reminded her. Under her breath. "'Ah, you remember?' "'I remember. And but last night I heard Kazib, the storyteller, tell the tale, and I thought of you and your warning, of the door that hid you, that it was forbidden for me to open. And so you opened it, monsieur.' Faintly she smiled, with downcast lashes. And I came as you first came to me, in mantle and veil. For a moment their thoughts fled back to that masquerade, which seemed so long ago. But it is too late, she said tremulously. Is it too late for me to help you? At that her eyes rose to his again in a swift flash of hunted fear. Oh, take me away from him, she breathed suddenly, unpremeditatively. Somehow, somewhere. Another figure came towards them. Madame de Coulvain, in all her severe elegance of black. "'Come and join your friends at supper, my dear. There is no need for you to be pilloried here any longer,' she observed with an indifferent scrutiny of the persistent veiled woman, and Ryder moved slowly away, while Amy came dutifully down from the throne, a huge black bending to hold her train. "'I thought you were never coming. What were you talking about?' demanded a voice in Ryder's ear, and he found Jinny Jeffreys at his side her bright grey eyes pouncing upon him with curiosity. "'Oh, I wished her joy, native phrases, that sort of thing,' he answered mechanically, as they drew back into an embrasure of the mesrubier that formed one side of the great room. "'But you were talking for ever. I saw you holding forth at tremendous rate. Why wouldn't you let me stay and listen?' "'You'd have put me off my shot. I had to feel unobserved to play up.' "'You must be fearfully good at Arabic,' said Jinny guilelessly. "'And what did she say?' Why, she didn't say anything in particular. But what was that she was showing you? I saw her bend forward with a locket or something. A plague upon Jinny's bright eyes. Oh, yes, the locket, said Ryder with an effort. She, uh, she showed it to me. But why? Wasn't that awfully funny? Oh, I believe it's a custom, courtesy stunt, you know, to show a poor guest some of the presents, he explained, manufacturing under pressure. I'd wish she'd show me her rings. Did you ever see so many? It was the only thing about her you'd call really Eastern, all those glittering diamonds on her fingers. And did you notice her hands? Jinny went on enthusiastically. Jack, I never knew there was anything so lovely as that girl in the world. She's simply exquisite. I suppose it's her whole life, Miss Jeffreys reflected, keeping herself beautiful. Her eyes rested curiously on the feminine groups before them. 
They haven't anything else to do or think about, have they? I understand some of them are remarkably educated young women. What's the use of it? said the practical daughter of an American college. They can't ever meet any men but just a husband. They can read for themselves, can't they, and talk to each other? And, well, what do you girls do with your education, anyway? You don't lug anything very heavy about the golf course and the ballroom. Who wants us to? But we do bring something to committees and clubs and welfare work, Miss Jeffreys maintained stoutly, and we are always into arguments at dinners, while these girls, they can't dine out, they haven't anybody but themselves to argue with, and it doesn't matter a straw politically what they think, they can't even change the customs that their great-great-great-grandfathers imposed. If I were one of these girls, she declared positively, I wouldn't bother about Kant and chemistry and history. I'd stuff myself full of sweetmeats and loll around on a divan, and not care what happened outside. Or else I'd be miserable. Perhaps they are miserable. They ought to fight. Think, think, said Jenny dramatically, of marrying some man you've never seen, the way that lovely girl is doing. Suppose she doesn't like him. Suppose he's dull and cranky and mean and greedy. Suppose he bores her. Suppose she actually hates him. Why, Jack, it's horrible. And yet she submits. She submits to it. Suppose she has to submit, that she hasn't a soul on earth to help her. How would you fight, I wonder? Well, you don't need to shout about it. That woman's looking now, that woman with the green turban and the stuffed date eyes. Nervously, Jinny glanced around. It's a fearful lark, she murmured, but I don't believe I'd ever have had the nerve if I'd realized. What do you suppose they would do, Jack, if they found you out? Those big blacks look so, so uncivilized. Her eyes rested upon the huge eunuch at the far entrance of the salon, a huge, hideous fellow with red fez, baggy blouse and trousers, and a knife-handle sticking piratically from a sash. "'He has on English Oxfords,' said Ryer, lightly. "'That's a saving something. But they aren't going to find out. I have an idea we ought to make our getaway now, and that we had better not go together. You go first, and then I'll stroll along and whisk off these duds in some quiet corner. I have to meet a man to-night, but I'll probably see you to-morrow.' And don't, he entreated, don't, as you love your life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, breathe a word of my being here like this to anyone, any time, anywhere. I was an unmitigated ass to link you up with it, so be wary. Oh, I shall, Jinny Jeffreys promised vividly, and with a last look about the old palace, the empty marriage throne, and the dissolving knots of guests, she gave a little nod to her veiled companion, sauntered without visible trepidation past the staring eunuch at the door, went down the long stairs where other departing guests were drawing on mantles and veils, and so made her way across a shadowy garden and out the gate that another black opened. And then she drew a sudden breath of relief and glanced up at a sky of sunset fires and felt the free airs play with her hair and face, and so shook off, lightly and gratefully, that darkening impression of shuttered rooms and guarding blacks. Little rivers of wine and fire were bubbling in Emmy's veins, she was gay at supper, as a bride should be gay. It was enough for those first few moments that she had seen him again, that he had dared to come and try to help her, that he had cared enough to come. Her heart sang little paeans of joy and triumph. She sketched impossible scenes of escape. She saw herself in a shrouding mantle, slipping with him past the guests at the door. She saw them speeding away in a motor. She saw France, the unknown Delcasses, a bright, gay world of freedom and romance. Or perhaps, if not to-night, then to-morrow. They would plan. She would obtain permission to take a drive, and there would be a signal, a waiting car. But better now. 
She could not endure even the call of ceremony from that man who called himself her husband. The very memory of his eyes on her. Decidedly it must be to-night, and Ryder would think of a way. She must get back to him. He would be lingering. She must get away from this hateful table, these guests and companions. A wild impatience tore at her. She grew uneasy, anxious, fretted at the frightening way that time was slipping past. Her radiance vanished, her smile was nervous, forced, as she sat at her table of honour, amid the circle of her friends, with a linked wreath of candelabra sending its sparkle of lights over the young faces and jewel-clasped throats, over the glittering silver on the white satin cloth among the drift of pink and white rose petals. She began to bite her lips nervously. She did not hear what her bridesmaids were chattering about. Her eyes went often, with that stealth that invites regard, to the tiny platinum and diamond watch upon her wrist. Would they never finish? Would they never be free? She wondered if she dared feign an illness to rise and leave them. But no, that would mean solicitude, companions. And now the slaves were bringing still another round of trays. Oh, hurry, hurry! Her tightening nerves besought. At last, the older women were going. Not even for a wedding would they deeply infringe upon that rule which keeps the Moslem women indoors after the sun has set. Ceremoniously, each made to the bride her adieu and good wishes, and ceremoniously, a frantically impatient Amy returned the formal thanks due for assistance at the humble fete. She did not see that black mantle anywhere. Her heart sank. Stupid, she told herself with quivering lips, to dream that he could dare to linger, that he had any way to get her out. By help he meant no more than getting letters to France for her. And yet his eyes, when they had met hers, surely he had meant. But when she had disappeared from the reception-room to attend the supper, when there seemed no way of speaking again to her, and all the outsiders, all but the invited guests, were departed, he had been obliged to go too. Perhaps someone had begun to notice him. She wondered if he had been careful about his shoes, his hands. How had he managed about the dress, anyway? And then she remembered that girl, that pretty American with the ruddy hair to whom she had seen him talking, and she conjectured that there was feminine aid and confidence. A wave of bitterness swept over her. He had told that girl about her. He knew that girl well enough to tell her, and perhaps he was only sorry for the poor little French girl in the Turkish harem. Perhaps they were both sorry. Had he told that girl, she thought with bitter mutiny, that he had kissed her? That girl must have been very sure of him not to be jealous of his interest in herself. And now they could be somewhere together, perhaps talking her over, while she was here, here forever. She was so white now, so silent, so distraught, that all the chatter of the younger girls who were lingering around her could not dispel the feeling of depression. They cast covert glances of discomfort at each other, begged for more music from the orchestra, tallied with an effort of the size and spaciousness of the palace and the magnificence of the feast. She had told herself that she had ceased to hope. She did not know how false it was until the eunuch brought his message. Then hope really died. The general was below, and begged to be announced to Madame. "'We fly,' whispered a lingerer, with nervous laughter, and hastily the young people hurried into their charchefs and veils, murmuring among themselves, with sidelong glances at that white figure whose cold hand and cheek they had just touched. Hastily they sped, like light-footed nymphs in some witch's robes, down the long room, while Madame de Coulvain drew back a strand of the girl's dark hair, and murmured, "'But smile, my dear,' to the still figure, and escaped with the guests. 
and then amy was alone in the great room deserted of its throngs a darkening room full of burned-down candles and fallen flower petals with here and there the traces of the revellers a scented handkerchief a fan a buckle from some french slipper or a feather from some ancient turban clasp like the ghost of some deserted queen with her regal satins and glittering circlet she waited there was a moment of grace in which she tried to turn a gallant face toward the next moment then he came advancing it may have been her distorted fancy but down the long perspective that figure looked more mincing more waspish more unreal than ever and she was conscious of that swift rising of dislike of antagonism touched with reasonless fear end of chapter twelve Chapter Thirteen of the Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter Thirteen The Bay Returns. He kissed her hands. She caught the murmur of compliments and the mingled scent of musk and wine. He had been dining at his reception for the men, but he called now for a table and more refreshment. A small table was brought to the end of the room near the marriage throne, where all the day she had paraded. A richly embroidered cloth of satin was flung over it, and from crowding candelabra fresh lights shed down a little circle of brilliance. Faintly Amy protested that eat she could not, and then she made a feint of eating, lingering over her sherbets, because eating was, after all, so safe and uncomplicated a thing. The black brought champagne in its jacket of ice and filled their glasses. The general rose. En notre bonheur, to our happiness, he declared, holding out his glass, and she clinked her own to it and brought her lips to touch the brim, but not to that toast could she swallow a single one of the bubbles that went winking up and down the hollow stem. The glass trembled suddenly in her hand as she set it down. An overpowering sense of fatigue was upon her. With the death of her poor hope, with the collapse of all those flighty, childish dreams, the leaden weight of reality seemed to descend crushingly upon her. She felt stricken, inert, apathetic. It was all so unreal, so bizarre. This could not possibly be taking place in her life, this fantastic scene, this table set with lights and food at the end of a dark, deserted old room, opposite this grimacing, foppish stranger. She could barely master strength for her replies. How had it all gone? Excellently? She was satisfied with her new home, with the service, the appointments? He plied her with questions, and she tried to summon her spirit. She achieved a few perfunctory phrases, the words of a frightened child struggling for its manners. She tried to smile, unconscious of the betrayal of her eyes. He told her, sketchily, of his day. Abhor those affairs, those speeches, he told her, gazing at her, his wine-glass in his hand, a flush of wine and excitement in his face. She found it unpleasant to look at him. Her glance evaded his. She stammered a word of praise for the palace. It must be very ancient, she told him, very interesting. He waved a hand on which an enormous ruby glittered. He could tell her stories of it, he promised. It had been built by one of the Mamelukes, his ancestor. Its old banqueting hall was still untouched. The collectors would give much to rifle that, but they would never get their sharks' noses in. Nothing had been changed, but something added. Once the Mad Khedive had borrowed it for some years, 
and begun his eternal additions. Forty girls, they say, he kept here, smiled Hamdi Bey. They gulped their pleasure in those days. It is better to sip, is it not? He smiled. But these are no stories for a bride. I only trust that you will not find your palace dull. It is very quiet now, very of the old school. You may miss your pianos, your electricity, all your pretty Parisian modernity. She glanced at the glittering table. But I do not find this so, so much of the old school. Here one does not eat rice with the fingers. And I, said the bey, leaning suddenly towards her on his outspread arm, do you find me too much of the old school, eh? Eh? But, but you, monsieur, she stammered, still looking down, you, I do not know you, not yet. Not yet. Excellent. There will be time. I confess that now I am weary. Ah, and that diadem is heavy. Your head must ache with it, he said solicitously. Perhaps it was the diadem that gave her that leaden, constricted sense of a band tightening about her forehead. She put up her hands to it. Permit me, he said quickly, springing to his feet. Permit me to aid you. He stepped behind her and bent over her. She held her head very still, stiff with distaste, and felt the weight lifted. He surveyed the circlet a moment, then placed it upon the marriage throne behind her. She had an ironic memory of the false omen of her crowning, of soft, satisfied, little Gul Adin's bestowal of her own happiness. Happiness, indeed. "'And that veil, surely that is incommoding?' suggested the suave voice and she felt the touch of his hands on her hair where the misty veil was secured. She stammered that it was quite light. She would not trouble him. Then she held herself rigid, for suddenly he had swept the veil aside and bent to press his lips to that most hidden of all veiled sanctities for a Moslem, the back of her neck. She did not stir. She sat fixed and tense. Then slowly the blood came back to her heart, for he was moving away from her again to his place at the table. Laughing a little, pulling at his blond moustache in a gesture of conquest, his kindling eyes glinting down at her, "'You must forgive the precipitateness of a lover,' he murmured. "'You do not know your own beauty. You are like a crystal, in which the world has thrown no reflections. All is pure and transparent.' If she did not find words to answer him, to divert his admiration, she felt that she was lost. "'You are not complimentary. A bit of glass, monsieur, instead of a diamond.' but I am too weary to be exacting. If now you will permit me to bid you good evening and withdraw. Little trembler, said the general facetiously, and reached out a hand to touch her cheek, the light reassuring caress that one might give a petted child, but it almost brought a cry of nervous terror from her lips. She thought that if he touched her again she would scream. He inspired her with a horrible fear. There was something so false, so smiling in him, he was like an ogre sitting down to a delicate dish of her young innocence, her childish terrors, her frank fears. She could not have told why she found him so horrible, but everything in her shrank convulsively from him. And the need of courtesy to him, and propitiation. The cup was bitterer than her darkest dreams. She wondered how many other women had drained such deadly brews, had sat in such ghastly despair, before some other bridegroom, affable, confident, masterful. She told herself that she was overwrought, hysterical. The man was courteous. He was trying to be agreeable, to make a little expected love. He had drank a little too much. Another time she might find him different. 
he was probably no worse than any other man of her world. It was not in her world, each young Turkish girl said in those days, that one could find love. But it was not her world. It was an alien world, enforced, imprisoning. That was the bitterest gall of all the deadly cup. "'There is no need for haste,' he was assuring her. "'In a moment I will call your woman. Fatima, her name is, an old slave of our house.' "'I could wish,' said Amy, "'that I had been permitted to bring my old nurse, Miriam, without whom I feel strange.' "'No old nurses. I know their wiles,' laughed the bey, setting down his drained cup with a wavering hand. "'They are never for the husbands, those old nurses. "'We will have no old trot's tricks here.' He laughed again. "'This Fatima is a watchdog. I warn you, my little one. But if she does not please you, we can find another. And as for the rooms, I have assigned this suite to you, the suite of honour. This is the salon, and there,' he pointed to a curtain door behind them, opening into a small room that Amy had already seen, "'there is your boudoir, and beyond that your sleeping apartment.' I have had them done over for you, but you shall choose your own furnishings. Everything shall be to your taste, I promise you. You are too sweet to deny. You have but to ask. Certainly, she thought, he was drunk. He moved his head so jerkily, and his whole body swayed so queerly. Desperately she fought against her horror. Perhaps it was better for him to be drunk. Drunken men grow sleepy. Perhaps he would fall down and sleep. Perhaps she ought to urge him to drink. Long ago the black had left the bottle at his elbow and gone out of his room. But she did not move. She sat back in her chair, withdrawn and shrinking, watching him out of those dark, terrified eyes. "'You are as beautiful as dreams,' he told her, leaning towards her with such abruptness that his sword struck clankingly against the table. "'Beyond even the words of my babbling cousin, eh? Allah reward her! But she did me a good turn with her talk of you.' Fixedly he stared at her, out of those intent, inflamed eyes. I did not know that there was anything like you in the harems of Cairo. You are like a vision of the old poets. But I suppose that you do not know the ancient poetry. You little moderns are brought up upon French and English and music, and know little of the Arabic and the Persian. I dare say that you have never heard of the poet, Yutea. Still leaning towards her, he began to intone the stanzas in a very fair tenor voice, and if his movements were at all unsteady, his speech was most precise and accurate. From her radiance the sun taketh increase, when she unveileth and shameth the moonlight bright. He chuckled. Ah, I shall put the triple veil upon you, my little moon. How is this one? O sun and moon of Pallas, cast thy sight. Enjoy her flower-like face, her fragrant light. Thine eyes shall never see in hair so black, beauty in case a brow so purely white. He got up and drew his chair closer to her. That is the song for you, little white rose of beauty. Back went her own chair, and she rose to her feet. I thank you for the compliment, monsieur. But now, may I have your permission to retire? For it has been a long day, and I am indeed fatigued. To her vexation, her voice was trembling, but she steadied it proudly. I bid you good evening. Nonsense, my little white rose. This is not so fatiguing. A few words more. But you are like the flower that flies before the wind. But your room, yes, to be sure. Shall I show you the way? I can discover it, monsieur. Monsieur, fie on you, my little dove. Hamdi, I tell you. Your lover, Hamdi. He laughed unsteadily, and put a hand on her arm. 
"'You are running away, I know that, and I have so much to tell you. Oh, it was tedious in that villa of your father's. Yes, I thought to myself, that is a fine story, a funny story, but I have heard them all before. And you are in no haste, you revellers. You have no little bride waiting for you at home. That one glance at you, I tell you it was the glance of which the poet sings, the glance that cost him a thousand sighs. I was on fire with impatience, for I am beauty's slave, little dove. You may have heard, but no matter. A wife must be a pearl unspotted. I am not as the English who take their wives from the highways, where all men's glances have rested upon them. Have I not been at their balls? Their women dance in other men's arms. They marry wives whose hands other men have pressed. Sometimes, who knows, their lips have been kissed. And then a husband takes her. Oh, many thanks. He laughed sardonically, and waved his hands a little wildly. Oh, I know, English, all the Europeans. I have seen their women. I have seen them selling their wares, stripping themselves half bare in the evenings. The shameless. For me, never. My wife is a hidden treasure. You know what the poet says. Ah, there be one who shares with me her love. I'd strangle love, though life by love were slain, saying, O oh soul, death were the nobler choice, for ill is love when shared twixt partners twain. You are fond of your poets, said Amy with stiff lips. You, you kindle poetic fires, my little one. You, I, he stammered a moment, then forgot his fierce speech against foreign ways. You have the raven hair. His hand went out to it. He smoothed it back out of her eyes, then tried to draw her to him. Desperately, she resisted. Monsieur, one does not expect a gentleman. Expect? Ho! Oh, what should one expect when a man has such a little sweetmeat, when a little syrup drop, such a rose petal? Come, come, you would not struggle. But it was not the struggling hand of the frightened girl that sent the general back. It was a brown, sinewy hand on his shoulder, a hand protruding from a well-tailored gray sleeve and lilac-striped cuff that caught Hamdi Bey by the epauletted shoulder and sent him spinning about. Another hand was holding a revolver very directly at him. "'Silence!' said Jack Ryder in his best Turkish, and repeated it with amplification in English. "'Not a sound, or I'll blow your head off.' Amy gave a strangled gasp. He had not gone, then. He had hidden there, in some nook of that boudoir, behind those shadowy curtains, waiting to protect her, to rescue. Over one arm he had the black mantle and veil. "'Better put these on,' he suggested, without taking his eyes from the rigid bay, and then run for it. "'But you? You? I'll take care of myself, after you are out of the way. Dare you try that? Or what do you suggest?' "'Oh, not alone. Together.' "'So, so,' said Hamdi Bey inarticulately. His head nodded. He staggered. His feet gave way, and he crumbled very completely upon the floor and lay like a felled log. After a quick look at him, Ryder turned to Ami. Quick, then, we'll make a run for it. He did not finish. Hamdi Bey, upon the floor, fallen half under the folds of the white cloth, made a swift and very expert roll, and darted to his feet beside Ami, whirling her about with pinioned elbows for his shield. And so screened, he gave a shrill whistle. End of chapter 13《Chapter Fourteen of the Fortieth Door》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. 
Chapter Fourteen, Within the Walls. Ryder sprang forward, trying to reach the bay, but he dodged skilfully. His holding Amy blocked Ryder in his attack. He knew that high, peculiar whistle had been a signal, a call for aid, and he flung a lightning glance down that long room, tightening his hold on the revolver. But he did not see the small door that opened in the shadowy panelling behind him, nor the shadow that grew into the gorilla-like shape of the black as it launched itself through the air upon his back. He only heard Amy's scream. And then, before the crashing weight upon his shoulders, he staggered and went down. The bay flung Amy aside and rushed upon the prostrate figure, kicking the revolver from the outspread hand. The black knelt swiftly down, unfastening his silken sash. Giddily the room whirled about Amy. In the candlelight, leaping in the rush of conflict, she saw the bay and the black and their distorted shadows in a goblin blur, and beneath them she saw Ryder, helpless, his hands and feet pinioned. With the madness of despair she rushed forward, but the general intercepted her. "'He is quite helpless. You need not be alarmed for my safety, madame.' The cold, biting fury of his voice steadied her. She saw his face was distorted, livid with anger. His breathing was stertorous. She stood helplessly by the table. The general turned and looked down upon the face of the man who had dared to violate the sanctity of his harem and attempt to steal his bride. Beyond the man's head, Yusuf, the black, was squatting with a grinning, dog-like watchfulness. But Ryder did not require watching. That sash had been tied strongly about his hands and feet. He was as helpless as a baby. But the peculiar flavor of his helplessness was not so much fear before the fanatic fury of this man he had outraged, although he had a clear notion that his position was not enviably secure, but a bitter black chagrin. To have had the game in his hands and have bungled it, to have been surprised by that simple strategy, taken off his guard by a feigned collapse, the wily old Turk for all his champagne had the clearer, quicker brain. To have let him get to Amy and call in his black, to have been thrown, disarmed. It was crass stupidity. It was outrageous mismanagement, abominable, maddening. And Amy must pay for it. He tried to think very quickly what could best clear her. He fixed his eyes on those glittering eyes, staring down upon him. I realize I owe you an explanation, he said grimly. If you will let me tell you. The bay turned to Amy with a smile that was the lifting of a lip and the distension of his nostrils. This fool thinks he has the time to talk his English. Desperately Ryder grasped for his vernacular. I want to tell you why I came. This, this young lady doesn't know me. Past the general he shot a look of warning at the girl. I was trying to get hold of her for her family in France. She is really a French girl. Tufik Pasha is not her father, but her— He could not find the word and dropped into English. Her stepfather, do you understand? and he had no business to marry her off. So I tried to steal her for the French family. It was a mad attempt which has failed, but for which the young lady should not be blamed. She has never seen me before. She had no idea I was here. After a pause. A remarkable story, said the general distinctly. He turned about to the table and drank off the last of a glass of champagne, and wiped his mouth with the back of a hand that trembled. He turned back to stand over his prostrate invader. "'Now, you, you dog of Satan!' he snarled in a sudden snapping of restraint. "'How did you get here? Who admitted you?' And at that, for all his trust and helpless plight, Jack Ryder grinned. 
He moved his head slightly. That blackbird of yours here. Yusuf, never. The very one. But he didn't know it. I was in that black mantle and veil. Oh, the mantle, I had forgot. So you stole in, disguised, to violate my hospitality, to outrage my harem, to gaze upon the forbidden faces of women, and to steal the bride. I tell you I was trying to rescue the girl for her French family. She is French, and Tufik Pasha is only— And what is that to me? Do I— The bay broke off, and then turned to the silent girl, who stood leaning towards them, a trembling ghost in white. And you, my little one, he murmured sardonically, with a savage irony of restraint, you, the little dove secluded from the world, who trembled at a kiss, the crystal vase, who had never reflected the blush of love, whose virginal praises I was chanting when I was so oddly assaulted. Do you support this idiot's story? Mechanically her head moved in assent. Her eyes, dilated with fear, were like the dark, fascinated eyes of some helpless bird. You never saw this young man, the bay pursued, and yet you were ready to run off with him. A pretty character you give yourself, my snowdrop. And you liked his eyes and hastened to obey? Amy was silent. From his ignominy upon the floor, Ryder hastened to interpose. It is true she had never seen me, but I had already written to her and acquainted her with the story. I tried to reach her first through her father, but that was useless, so I resorted to these desperate means. Oh, you wrote, and you told her you would be here and murder her husband? I told her nothing of the kind. She didn't know that I was coming until I spoke to her here, and then she had no idea that I was going to wait and carry her off. In the name of Allah, do you take me for a dolt, an ass? You, with your writing, and your masquerade, and your secrets, do any families try to recover their relatives with such means? Daughter or stepdaughter, it is nothing to me. But it is true, Amy insisted in a trembling voice. My father was Paul Delcasse. Yarakidisek man rabrak! Curse the man who brought thee up! Delcas or devil, it is Tufik Pasha who is your stepfather, your guardian, who gave you to me for a wife. What has your genealogy to do with this affront upon my honour? But he did not intend to affront your honour, only to aid the family in France. I ask you again, do I resemble an ass that you should put such a burden of lies upon me? As if I did not know why young men risk their lives in the dead of night in other men's rooms. If I did not know what turns their brains to mush and their hearts to leading strings. And you, you little white rose of seclusion. His venom leaped out at her in his voice. It was a terrible voice, the cold, grating menace of a madman. You, who had never seen this man, but who fluttered to him like a white moth to a fire. You who cowered from your husband's hand but who turned to follow this strange dog into the streets. There will be care taken of you later. But now you complain of fatigue. Surely this scene is overtaxing for your delicacy, if you will come to your rooms. She drew back from the hand he laid upon her. Do not injure him. By Allah's truth, he is rash, mad, but a stranger. He did not know. He needs enlightenment. He needs to learn that a nobleman's harem is not a café of dancing girls, where all may enter and stare and fondle. Bishmallah, he shall learn. And now come. I shall not go, she said breathlessly. What? Struggle? But your father has been strangely remiss with his discipline. Permit me. His hand tightened in a grasp of iron. My train is caught, she said in a tone of sudden pettishness. She stooped to lift it with her hand that was free. 
my train he mimicked her in a quivering falsetto have a care of my frock do not crush my chiffons and these are the women for whom men break their heads and hearts i tell you sir came urgently from ryder that the girl is innocent of all keep your tongue from her name and your eyes from her face come madame with his iron grasp on her elbow he thrust her towards the boudoir at the end of the drawing-room behind whose curtains ryder had so long been hiding the chamber was in darkness lighted only by a pale gleam from the other room amy stumbled across the rug and found herself upon a huge divan against a window-screen fatima is in the next room to come at a call but perhaps you would prefer to wait for me alone i shall not be long desperately she caught at his arm imploring i beg you monsieur he has done no real harm let him go he is a stranger he did not know and he will never trouble you again i will do anything everything you desire if only you will not injure him you trouble yourself strangely for a stranger he is a stranger in danger for my sake for it was in his duty to my my family her trembling lips stumbled over the ridiculous lies that he has blundered into this he has no idea how shocking a thing he has and you had no idea either i suppose you had never heard of honour or treachery or i was wrong oh i was wrong i did want to go to france i own it but i was not ready for marriage and i had heard that you-i was afraid but now if you will let him go for my sake if you will not visit my sins upon him oh i should be so grateful so grateful that anything i can ever do but you will be grateful anyway my little blossom i promise you that you will learn to be very grateful it is easier to die than to learn to love a hated one she reminded him softly leaning towards him i can die very willingly monsieur and you would not want a wife before whom there was always an object of terror through the dusk her great eyes sought his be generous and harm him not she breathed i beg of you i implore and if i am lenient you will always be grateful mutely she nodded her eyes trying pitifully to read that shadowy mask of mockery he turned towards her and how grateful could you be little dove pitifully she smiled could you he murmured could you learn to kiss he leaned nearer and involuntarily she shrank back faintly at this moment i beg of you monsieur oh if it is to be an affair of moments we shall never find the right one but you were so full of promises i will do anything said amy convulsively if you will promise me come then a kiss a peck from my little dove she looked at him out of wretched eyes and you promise to free him not to hurt him i promise not to hurt a hair of his head come that is generous isn't it as to freeing him hm, that is for later perhaps if you are very good a kiss then and later he bent over her she shut her eyes and heard the taunt of his laugh she kissed him and he laughed again what is it that the afghan poets say kiss lips lose no sweetness but renew their freshness with the moon certainly if you have ever been kissed little bud you have lost no dew delicious i shall hurry back he cast a hard look down at her as she sat there her arms drooping at her sides he looked about the room as if consideringly then nodded at an unseen door at the right fatima is there if you want lights or assistance and alsmith yusuf's brother is at the other door beyond do not stir little bird i shall be back very soon and he you promised 
I shall not hurt a hair of his head. But he was smiling evilly in the darkness as he drew shut the door and returned to the bound figure by the guarding black. For a moment he stood silent, considering, while Yusuf looked up with glistening-eyed intentness like an eager dog ready for the word of attack. Then, in hasty Turkish, the general gave his directions, and the black nodded and strode to a portier, jerking it down, which he wrapped about Ryder's helpless form. Then he hoisted his burden over his huge shoulder and bore it on after the general. Across the great room they went, and down the long stairs, up which that day a most complacent Hamdi Bey had escorted his just-glimpsed bride. Now, at the bottom of the stairs, a shadowy figure of a sleeping eunuch was stretched. Hamdi Bey spoke sharply, giving a quick order. The black scrambled to his feet, yawned, nodded, and strode away into the main vestibule and out into the garden, to investigate a shadow which the general had just reported, and when he was out of sight, the general and Yusuf, with his unwieldy burden, came quietly down the stairs and turned back into a long, dark hall. For a moment they paused outside a wide, many-columned banqueting room, and there Hamdi Bey stood listening straining attentive ears for the faint sounds from the service quarters on the other side of the room. He caught the guttural of a half-inaudible voice, and the wash of water and clink of a dish, showing that the belated work of the reception was going draggingly on, but it was all far away and invisible. Satisfied, he went on a few steps to a pointed door set in the heavy stone. From a nail he took down a lantern of heavy, fretted brass and lighted it, not without some difficulty, for his hands were still trembling. Then he took from the black a cumbersome key, which he fitted into the lock and turned heavily. Drawing back the door, he motioned Yusuf ahead, and followed, drawing the door shut. Down a steep stone spiral stair they went, and at the bottom, at the general's order, the black set Ryder down from his shoulder and flung aside the portiere. From its muffling folds Ryder looked out bewilderedly into the darkness about him, illumined only by the yellow flare of the ancient lantern. The general cautioned him to silence, while Yusuf knelt and untied the strip that bound his feet. Then, his arms still bound, he was ordered to march on before them. This, he said to himself, as he silently obeyed that order, this really was the time to pinch himself and wake up. Of all the dark, eerie nightmares, this slow procession through these underground halls, the giant black on his heels, the general's lantern throwing its flickering rays over the huge, seamed blocks of granite foundations. It made him think of the catacombs. It made him think of the Serapium. It made him think of those damp, torturous underground ways of the Villa Bordoni. They seemed to be in the wine-cellars. He saw bins and barrels and barred vaults that would have done credit to an English squire, and he reflected fleetly that wine-bibbing was forbidden to Mohammedans, and that Hamdi Bey was a fanatic Moslem. Then he saw open spaces of ancient stuffs, broken tables, and dismantled casks and a broken oar. His earlier observation of the palace had told him that it had a water-gate, and he thought now that they might be near some opening. He wondered if they were going to throw him, pinioned, into the river. He wouldn't put it past this livid, silent, shaking man, and yet the thing appeared so impossible, so theatric, so utterly unrelated to any of the ways that he, Jack Ryder, might be expected to end his days, that it couldn't possibly send more than a shiver of speculation down his spine. And yet men had been thrown into rivers, this very river, and men had disappeared from just such palaces as this. There was the story about young Monkton. He knew it perfectly. 
He had reminded himself of it the last evening, while he reflected upon this escapade, but he had never actually appreciated the peculiar poignancy of the thing until now. Monkton had met, so rumour reported, a Turkish lady of position, flirted with her, it was said, while on horseback outside her motor, when caught in the crush at Kazir el Nil Bridge. There had been a meeting or two in the back of shops, and then he had boasted, light-heartedly, of a design to take tea in her harem. He had never boasted about the tea. No one had ever seen Monkton again, and he was generally reported, after a stifled inquiry, to have been thrown from his horse in the desert, or spilled out of his sailing-canoe. The government, English or Egyptian, assumed no interest in the matter of gentlemen found in other gentlemen's harems. There were other stories, too. There was one of a little Viennese actress, who, after a dramatic escape, reported a whole winter of captivity in one of these old palaces, and there was a vaguer rumour of a rash young American girl, detained for days. Ryder had always known these stories. They were part of the gossip and thrill of Cairo, but he had never till now realised how exquisitely possible was their occurrence. Anything, everything, might happen in these hidden secret chambers. These Turks were as much masters here as their old predecessors who had reared these stones. This black upon his heels might have been the grinning, faithful executioner of some Khedive or Caliph. He might have been the very Masrur, the sorter of vengeance of al-Rashid. He told himself that it was no time to think of the past. His business, acutely, was in the present. If only he could get his hands untied, if only he could get those untied hands upon that demoniac Turk. But strain as he could upon the knots, they held. It seemed to him that they had been walking for an interminable distance, in odd, roundabout ways. Once they had stopped, and he had involuntarily glanced back over his shoulder, but at a word from the general he had kept his head forward again, while he heard the black behind him, gathering something that clinked. Later a stolen glance had revealed the eunuch with some tools in one hand, and a bag slung over his shoulder. The bag disquieted him. Bags filled a foreboding place in the eastern literature of vengeance. He wondered if he were to go into the river in that bag, with the tools for weight. He decided, feeling now a very odd and definite disturbance in the region of his stomach, that he would tell that general that he was a cousin of the late Lord Cromer and a nephew of Lord Kitchener. Something insistent would have to be done about this. They were passing now through a strange open space, between old arches that for an instant arrested his excavator's interest. He saw in the shadows about them a crumbled, crumbling dome and broken shafts, with half a wall of masonry pierced with arabesques. Traces of old ruins, fragments of some old, forgotten mosque, over which the palace had spread its foundations in bygone days. Buried treasure looted some of it, for the palace overhead, but still rare and lovely. That was a gleam of lapis lazuli that winked at him from the crumbling mortar under his feet. Then they were between other walls, not crumbling ones, but the solid, pillared walls of the palace masonry, with here and there broad arches of old brick. They stopped. Between two arches the general held his lantern high, flashing it over the surface while Yusuf swung down his sack and knocked with the handle of his tool. Suddenly he stopped and looked at his master, nodding cheerfully. The general lowered his light and stepped back, and Yusuf reared the pickaxe in his powerful arms and sent it dexterously at the wall, between two broken bits of brick. It caught, and sent the mortar spraying. Another blow, and another, loosened a hole in which the black inserted a short iron, 
and began nervously grinding and prying. Ryder, watching with oppressed and helpless fury, saw the bricks at last break and tumble faster and faster in a cloud of dust, and saw a pocket in the wall become revealed, a long, upright niche, the size, perhaps, of a man's coffin on end. He tried very suddenly to talk. His tongue felt thick and swollen, and there seemed no words in all the world to fit his need of overcoming this fanatic madman. And after all, he had no chance for them, for Yusuf, with a huge palm upon his mouth, urged him suddenly backwards towards that horrible niche. "'Gently, Yusuf, gently,' said the general suavely, and with a slow distinctness that was for Ryder's ears. "'I gave my word that I would not hurt a hair of his head.' Grinning, the black lifted him over the remaining wall, and set him down into the niche, leaving him standing in there like a helpless statue, tasting to the full fury of his heart, the bitterness of his helplessness, and the ludicrous impotence of all struggle. "'Good God, sir, you must be mad!' he said, in a strained, sharp voice that his ears would not have known as his own. "'Do you realize there will be an inquiry? There is such a thing as law?' It seemed to him that he talked in English and stammering Arabic for a long time. The black was kneeling out of sight, stooping over a basin of water and his abominable sack, and Ryder was facing that silent, sardonic face with its fantastic moustache, its evil, gloating eyes. He stopped for very shame. The man was mad, mad and drunk, and there was no appeal from Philip drunk to Philip sober. Mad or drunk, he had devised his vengeance shrewdly. Upon Ryder's helpless body a cold sweat of incredulous horror broke softly out. At his feet he heard the black beginning to fit his bricks and smooth his mortar. "'You do well to save your breath,' said Hamdi Bey at last, as Ryder still stood silent. "'You will need it in this chamber I am providing. But it may be,' he said thoughtfully, "'that your breath will last your need. Thirst may be the more impatient for her victim. They tell me thirst is an obtrusive visitor.' as you were this evening still why do you not cry out a little it will amuse my black yes this was real ryder reminded himself and these things could happen had happened he remembered suddenly the hideous scene outside the dungeons in francesca d'aramini when that bestial brother goes into the helpless prisoners he remembered the sick horror of those groans he remembered also various excursions of his in the tower of london and the seigneurie of Florence, and the sight of old rings and stakes and racks, and the feeling of their total unrelatedness to every actuality. And yet they had happened, and this thing, for all its fantastic medieval horror, was happening. Brick by brick the imprisoning wall was rising. Brick by brick it intervened between him and sane, sensible, happy, normal life. Eye for eye he gave the general back his look, he had always wondered about the poor devils in underground torture chambers, had wondered how they had the stuff to hold out against such odds, for some belief, some information. Now he knew the stiffening stuff of a personal hate, upholding to the very grave. That sardonic devil's face, that face which was going back upstairs to Amy. But he must not think of that, or he should give way and begin to babble, to plead. He must simply stand and meet that glance. And there came that incredible, insane moment when Ryder looked out on that face through one last breathing space, and then saw the fitted brick settled into place, blot the world to darkness before his eyes. End of chapter 14